ask you all to stand at this time as we reverence the reading of God's Word in Joshua chapter 5 uh, and verse 9, a message I call, Rolled Away, Rolled Away, Joshua chapter 5 and verse 9. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. We go back this morning to a story told in the scriptures again and again and again, referred to often over and over. The story of how God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. Our text today is centered in that passage where they arrive for that last time. They've crossed the Jordan River. We'll see that in a few moments. And they're at a place called Gilgal. Like uh, so many places in Scripture, it's one that you see again and again and again. The name Gilgal means rolled away. Rolled away. There on that day, they... We're in a place that had been a long time coming. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 23, the Bible says that he brought us out from there that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. You see, he brought them out of Egypt to bring them into that land of promise, Canaan's land. Now in our text today, the children of Israel are finally there. They crossed the Jordan River miraculously as God stopped the water at flood stage. And you think about any river that you've ever seen at flood stage. That was the Jordan. Most of the time, and the, the Jordan River is not very large. It's much smaller than the Arkansas, much smaller than the White, much smaller, most places even than the Cache River. It's not very large. But of course, at flood stage, any river becomes a formidable force. It's flooding. But it was time for the children of Israel to cross it. You remember the story, if you remember your Bible school times, how that they carried the ark. The priests bore the ark out into the middle of that raging torrent of water. And as soon as those priests carrying the ark, as their feet touched the edge of the water, the water stopped. And the Bible says it began to pile up like a heap. And God worked so that they were able to walk across the Jordan River dryshod. In commemoration of that, uh, God commanded and then Joshua commanded that 12 men would carry 12 stones up out of the Jordan River. They would gather them from the place where the priests had stood and where the water had stayed. There in the Jordan River itself, there would be another uh, 12 stones set up there. But of course, you wouldn't be able to see that most of the time. It would be underwater. But there in Gilgal, in the camp... They would carry those 12 stones, Joshua 4.20 says, which they took out of Jordan, and did Joshua then pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. Those stones would be as large as a strong man could carry. The Bible specifically says they were to carry them on their shoulders. 
Now, some of you are probably going to ask me, does that mean that three or four of them teamed up to carry one and they made several trips? Or does it mean that every one of them got one as big as they could carry on their shoulder? Well, when I read the text, it seems to be an individual thing. They read, the, uh, God told them, put it on their shoulder and they carried them up and they set up then a pillar in Gilgal. We can imagine what that must have been like to carry those stones. It would have seemed okay initially, any of you who ever shouldered a heavy weight and carried something on your shoulder like that, most of the men here I'm sure can identify with that, some of you ladies perhaps as well, it carried a heavy load on your shoulder, and at first it seems okay. But then after you've walked 100 yards or so, it starts to get a little heavy. You shift it around, maybe go from one shoulder to the other, maybe move it around. I mean, it's kind of awkward carrying something, especially something like a stone, heavy. You can only imagine then when finally the command was given to drop the stones. God, you see, was giving them a very vivid visual image of what he was doing. As the stones rolled off their back and hit the ground. You see, they'd been slaves in Egypt. Their burdens were heavy and then became heavier. We remember the cruel taskmasters that they served under and how they literally tried to work the children of Israel to death. But in spite of that, they continued to prosper and multiply. We remember the attempt at Pharaoh at genocide and killing all of the male Hebrew babies trying to wipe out the nation of Israel. Once you see, they had been experts in carrying stones and heavy burdens. We might think, well, that was what God was saying when he said, I'm going to roll away the burden of Egypt from you. Oh, but there was much, much more going on here. Because the reproach of Egypt had gone further. You see, the children of Israel could have made the journey into Canaan in a few weeks at most, even taking their time to allow for God to transition them from being slaves to being soldiers, even allowing for that time. Uh, They could have made it in just a couple of years at most. Um, And that's really about as far as we can move the timetable out. But rejection after rejection led to rebellion after rebellion. And then finally, they came to Kadesh Barnea. And there they spent spies into the land to spy out the land. And that hadn't been very long. Like I said, at the very most, it was about two years. And probably, probably not even close to being that long. And they arrived then at Kadesh Barnea. They sent in the spies. They spied out the land for 40 days. And they came back. And after all the mighty miracles that they had seen, all of the incredible times with God that they had had, after all of the amazing things they would seen God do, One of the most incredible acts of rejection in human history. Rivaled perhaps only by the rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ by Israel. Many years later, who had seen all of his wonderful works. And yet they said, crucify him. That marvelous moment, that incredible moment then of unbelief. God responded. Numbers chapter 14 verse 33. And your sons 
shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and bear the brunt of your infidelity. Infidelity is lack of faithfulness. Until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness, according to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years. So to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me in this wilderness, they shall be consumed and they shall surely die. I, the Lord, have spoken this. Forty years. During all that time, the remnants and therefore the reproach of their enslavement in Egypt was always in their hearts and minds. And so from that time when they arrived at Kadesh Barnea, however long that was, and they spied out the land and the people rejected God's leadership, those 40 days of rejection turned into 40 years of wondering. God had got them out of Egypt, but he didn't get Egypt out of them. And so that generation, all of them who were above 20 years old, all of them died in the wilderness except for two. And their names were not Moses and Aaron. They died in the wilderness too. Their names was Joshua and Caleb. It's critical at this moment for us to remember that the promised land was a place of rest where God's people would rest in his promises. And even though they were surrounded by enemies, they could rest in God's protection from them. It was a place of victory as they conquered their enemies and they conquered their Canaan and they claimed their promises. It was a place of God's provision for them, promises, power, provision, protection. It was the promised land, but it was not, it was not a picture of heaven. Even though we often treat it that way, it was not. Those who died in the wilderness then were not a picture of a people who somehow lost their salvation and didn't make it to heaven because they didn't make the promised land. That, no, no, no. Such a thing is not taught in Scripture anywhere. The promised land is not about heaven. It's about this life here and now. It's about God's deliverance in their life, God's deliverance, God's victory, God's promises, God's protection, God's provisions, God's power in our life, where we rest in Him now, in the here and now. You see, God's deliverance in our lives is not just about getting us to heaven when we die. That is going to happen, by the way. And I'm glad to be able to say to you this morning, if you're saved, if you're a blood-bought child of God today, you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you are eternally saved. That salvation is going to get you to heaven. There's absolutely no question about that. God has promised us, and it will be done. Ephesians uh, chapter 1 tells us that He gave us the earnest of the Spirit. And that is, when we were saved, He put the Spirit in us. And that is God's earnest to us. 
It's the exact same thing that we do when we put earnest down on a piece of property. What is that? That is our guarantee that we're going to finish the deal. God is the one that put earnest down on us when we got saved. What is that earnest? That is the Holy Spirit inside of you and the Holy Spirit inside of me. And he stands in as God's absolute guarantee that he will finish what he has started. He which has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Uh, There's not a shred of evidence anywhere in Scripture that anybody who is saved is going to come up short of heaven. No. No. But it is possible for us to be saved and got out of Egypt and yet not make it into that place of peace, that place of rest, that place of power and provision. Pictured so beautifully for us in the, as the promised land. A place where God's people would serve Him. Be faithful to Him. We're not specu- left to speculate about why they came up short of the promised land. The writer of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 11. So I swore in my wrath. It's God speaking. They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. There's number one reason. An evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily what it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. That's number two. Two reasons. An evil heart of unbelief and a hard heart. A heart hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Why did they die in the wilderness? Because of unbelief. Why didn't they believe God in the face of such empirical and extraordinary evidence that they had seen? Because their hearts were hardened by sin. They were out of Egypt. But Egypt was still in them and the reproach of Egypt then continued on them. Because they didn't go on with God in faith. Because they didn't believe God. Because their hearts were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness of sin is the one that convinces us that we can harden our hearts and say no to God again and again and again and there not be some consequence. It's because that some lightning bolt doesn't fall from the sky and burn the ground underneath us doesn't mean that God has not moved in judgment against us. Every act of rebellion, every act of resistance, every time we say no to God hardens our heart against Him. And before long, it'll be so hard that we don't even see how hard it is anymore. The taskmasters of Egypt then were replaced by the taskmasters of sin in their hearts and their lives. And the writer of Hebrews issues us a strong and solemn warning today. It can happen to us. It can happen to you. It can happen to me. Beware, the writer of Hebrews says, lest there be in any of you same thing that happened to them can happen to us. God can get us out of Egypt. That does indeed picture our salvation. But we can fail to believe God and go on with Him. And even though we're sure that we're going to heaven when we die, we never really enter into that promised land where we live out the blessings of God in this life. Some of you may be living this out this morning. Maybe you felt for years there's something wrong. 
Maybe you're on the verge even of giving up on your Christian faith altogether. What's wrong? What's wrong? Why, why is it working? I'll tell you, a lot of times what happens is God gets us out of Egypt. That is, God saves us. But because of unbelief, because of the hardness of our own hearts, we refuse to go on with God when He opens a door for us full of promises and blessings. You're here. Go on. We say no. As God's people, even today, we can live out our lives full of constant toil and strife, weighed down under the heavy load of disobedience. What a weariness is this wilderness. Forty years. One writer I read after this week said that this was the longest funeral procession in recorded human history. Forty years. God pronounced their death sentence. Forty years of funerals and death and judgment. Every day one more would die. Sometimes dozens. Sometimes thousands. And every one of those deaths was under the pronouncement of the judgment of God because God told them, you will stay here until every one of you die in this wilderness if you're over 20 years old, except for Joshua and Caleb. Forty years of waiting, 40 years of wandering, 40 long years. The youngest in that crowd... The younger ones, or the oldest ones, rather, in that crowd at Gilgal. The oldest they could have been. Would have been just shy of 60 years old. If everybody died, they wandered for 40 years. And if they were over 20, they died. So the oldest that anybody in that crowd now, except for Joshua and Caleb, were about 60. There's a whole lot of these people in that crowd. I mean, a whole bunch of them. Weren't even alive when that event happened. They were born after that event happened. Yet for all of their life, for 40 years, they had lived under the judgment of God because of something their parents did. Something their forefathers had done for 40 years. And God told them that. God told them. Your children will be shepherds in the wilderness for 40 years. Numbers 14. And they will bear the brunt of your infidelity. Isn't that interesting? Your children will pay the price for what you've done 40 years. That's just for the sake of round numbers today. Say that they are a congregation. Bunch of 60-year-olds and down, all the way down to the youngest infants. But I've got good news for you today. That is the prelude of our text. The wilderness wandering, the rejection of God at Kadesh, the years of death and dying and judgment. The 40 years that your children bore the reproach of their parents' lack of faith. <laughs> now they've crossed the Jordan River. 
now they will carry that burden of that reproach no longer. They didn't walk across the Jordan River with mud in their toes. They had dust on their ankles. They walked on dry ground. God did that. And now he's put up these stones because he's told them, I want you to tell this to your children and to your grandchildren. When you bring them back to this place, you say, what meaneth these stones? And you tell them, this is where God rolled away our reproach. The reproach of Egypt. The reproach of the 40 years of rejection and rebellion where we bore the brunt of what our parents did. This is where God rolled that reproach away. So that we could go on then to the promised land and go on in victory. So that the burdens of our heart were rolled away from us. So that we carried them no longer. What meaneth these stones? couldn't help but think this week of a lot of places we visit. I thought specifically of the Toltec Mounds down here, uh, just on the Arkansas River, not far away. Some of you have been there. I've been there many times. To this day, we still don't know really what those mounds meant. Because everybody that built them is dead. And they didn't write it down for us. This is why we did this. We're left to figure it out. But God said, no, this, this is going to be something. I'm setting this up as a, as a stone of remembrance, as a place of remembrance, so that you tell generation after generation after generation after generation that your God is a God who can roll your burdens away. Yes, you may carry that burden of sin. Yes, you may carry that burden of rejection. Yes, you may carry that rebellion. And you may carry it a long time, but our God can roll that reproach away. You tell them, and I'm here today to tell you we still serve the God that can roll that reproach away. There's four things that the Bible emphasizes that happened in Gilgal. We'll move through them fairly quickly. First thing we see is there was a time of preparation. Verse 6, for the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. And then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he had raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had, been not, they had not been circumcised on the way. Now, in the Old Testament, the circumcision of male children was prescribed to happen on the eighth day of their life. It was given to Abraham as a sign or a symbol of the Old Testament covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. During those 40 years then of wandering under God's judgment in wilderness, the babies born had not undergone that ritual of circumcision. And so Joshua saw to it that this was done that day. It would require a time of healing, of course, after that procedure was done. So verse 8 says they stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed, which according to the text was about three days. They came over the Jordan River on the 10th day of Nisan. That was the first month of the Jewish year. Passover, they then would observe, was on the 14th day of Nisan. So about three days then afterwards they were 
healing. All this time, they were only a couple of miles from Jericho. They very likely could have seen the city. And God told us something that was going on there. In Joshua chapter 5 and verse 1, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanite who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. No wonder. No wonder. How would you like to see an army standing off of our shores today that God had parted the ocean for so they could just walk across? How would that make you feel? That's how it made them feel. Their hearts melted within them. What was going on in Jericho? They were terrified. So we look at that and say, man, if their hearts had melted and they'd lost all will to fight, then wasn't this a time to press the battle? No, it was not. It's not a time to press the battle. There was something more important for them to do than to fight. There was a time of preparation that they needed to go through. There were things they had left undone that they needed to do. Things that they could not do under God's judgment that now it was time for them to do it. There they were in the promised land of blessing and provision. There were things they needed to take care of. Steps of obedience that they needed to follow. That symbol of the covenant needed to be applied. God then established a great principle. Don't go into battle unprepared with lingering disobedience. More important than pressing the battle, God prepared them for the victory that was ahead. As they obeyed God. Second thing we see, the preparation then was the praise. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. It had been 40 years since they had last observed the Passover, all the way back in Numbers chapter 9 was when that was recorded. It was at the beginning of their second year. You remember the first Passover? They celebrated that one in Egypt. The second one, a year later, they would, at the beginning of their second year, the Bible says, then they observed the Passover again. Before it was time to observe the Passover again would come that awful time of rejection and rebellion. Put them under the judgment of God. It's been 40 years now since they've observed the Passover. Whole families had been born and grown up and were now having children of their own. Those old folks, those 60-year-olds, you know, they, they had grandchildren. Their grandchildren had never observed the Passover. Whole families had never observed the Passover. Not one time. Not in their whole life. God didn't send them then into battle with necessary things that had been left undone. So God doesn't send them into battle without this time of worship and praise. That high and holy day of consecration and celebration. As they celebrated God's victory. When he brought them out of Egypt. Under the blood of the Passover lamb. 
Only God knows today how many times we go out into the world of our lives to do battle with, without preparation. Trying to do battle then without worship and praise. Paul warned us that we face a spiritual adversary and it is a spiritual conflict in which we are engaged and it requires spiritual weapons. It was a time of preparation. It was a time of praise. Then we see God made provision for them. Verse 11. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. I can only imagine what it must have been like for those people who had never known anything but manna. Had a little quail thrown in from time to time, but aside from that, it was manna. Well, that was the day that the manna stopped. Now they're in the promised land. And the Bible says from that day on, they would eat of the fruit of the land. The manna stopped. Don't want to make too much out of this this morning, nor consider it insignificant. But as we go on into victory, as we move away from Egypt, and then move actually into the promised land, where we rest in the Lord, where we enjoy His protection, a part of what we're doing then is experiencing His provision. You remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 in His ministry with the five loaves and two fishes. And they showed up the next day wanting another meal. And Jesus taught them and said, I am the bread of life. And they said, oh, Lord, evermore give us this bread. But they weren't talking about him. They were talking about that supernatural provision that he had made for them. They even compared and brought up that manna in the wilderness. Our fathers gave us manna in the wilderness. Oh, Lord, evermore give us this day. But you know, God doesn't leave us to live out our whole spiritual lives like baby birds. Sitting in a nest waiting for somebody to come along and put food in her mouth. Yes, God had miraculously provided for them for their whole lives. Now they're in the promised land. And it's time to go on. God wasn't going to feed them that way anymore. I think this is a very powerful reminder for us about how that we have to learn to eat the produce of the land. A part of what it means uh, getting out of Egypt and going on to the promised land is that we learn how to eat off the promised land. We learn how to feast on the word of God. Remember Jesus told us man shall not live by bread alone. He also told us woe unto them that are full. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness but woe unto those that are full. There was preparation. There was praise. There was provision. The last thing, of course, that we see is power. I love this Old Testament passage. I love it. Verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay. But as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot. 
for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Make no mistake about it. Joshua had an Old Testament encounter with the captain of the Lord's host. That is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. Appearing in the Old Testament in the form of the captain of the host. We know it wasn't an angel because no angel ever received worship from any man. Any man who ever falls at the feet of an angel is told to get up. We know it wasn't an angel because the Lord told him, you take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. If you think that Joshua might have possibly recognized that that was what uh, Moses had received at the burning bush, you think maybe his memory was jostled a bit. I do. Joshua got an important message. Generations of preachers have pointed it out, (laughs) including me, many times. And I still like saying it. Listen, God never comes to take sides. He comes to take over. Are you for us or against us? No. (laughs) I'm here to be in charge. That's the position God is in. God never joins us on our side. Thank God he didn't join our enemies on their side. When God is there, God is in charge. Joshua needed to know that. He needed to know that the battles that were ahead of them were his. All this happened at Gilgal. Where God rolled away the reproach of Egypt, the heavy burden that they had carried for 40 years of unbelief and rebellion. I want to make some applications now for us today, and we'll wrap this up. Many of God's people today are saved. That is, God has got them out of Egypt. But like the children of Israel, unfortunately, many of God's people are going to live and die in the wilderness. It doesn't mean they're not going to go to heaven. It does mean they're not going to get to enjoy the provisions of God and the promised land. Because of what? Because of unbelief. And because our hearts are hardened. Sadly, this often becomes a legacy of reproach that is passed on to children. It is a grief to my heart to see how many people in America today, how many children in America today, how many young people in Cabot, Arkansas, right now today, whose parents are so far away from God that they never give one shred of consideration. To getting their children to church. If they show up here. Either they're going to have to get here on their own. Or some of us are going to have to go get them. Sad reality of kids sometimes. That we see saved. And and their parents can't even get them here to get them baptized. What is it? Those children grow up then. Bearing the reproach. Of their parents unbelief. Their parents rejection. Their parents' refusal to go on with God. A lot of people end up, though they're saved, they're living and dying in the wilderness. It can happen then where people, though they're saved, they never get that time of careful preparation and obedience where you follow God and obey God. We see that as circumcision in this passage. 
And though we must must draw important distinctions between circumcision and baptism, and the reason I say that for you today is because that many, many people try to draw a correlation between the Old Testament practice of circumcision, which happened on infants, and baptism in the New Testament. Circumcision in the Old Testament does not provide a proof text for infant baptism. Number one, because there's not a single case or episode anywhere in the Bible where you ever see an infant being baptized. Not a one. Not one. But many people try to make that correlation. But in fact, there is a sharp distinction drawn. Circumcision was a symbol of the Old Testament covenant, God's covenant with Abraham. And that covenant was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And with the ushering in then of the new covenant came a new sign of the covenant. And that was baptism. And it is a better sign because everything God does under the new covenant is better than the old covenant. Why is baptism better than circumcision? Because number one, uh, in, in, in circumcision, that could only happen on the males. That's it. There's none of that for females. Only males then could have the circumcision and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, where circumcision was only on one part of the body. The whole body goes under the water in baptism. And it can be for men and women both. Both of them then get that symbol. And the, not just a part of the body, but the whole body goes under the water and comes out with the instruction to walk therefore in newness of life. Many of the people in the Old Testament who were circumcised would die in their sins because they never went on to believe. Though they were circumcised, they never became believers. How do we know that? Look in the New Testament. John chapter 1 says, He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. New Testament baptism is only for believers. Only for believers. You say, well, Brother Rich, I was baptized. And then later on I got saved. No, you weren't baptized. I don't care if it was in that tank right there. If you weren't saved, when we put you under the water, then you got wet, but you weren't baptized. The only way that New Testament baptism can occur is upon believers in Christ. So while many were circumcised, would never grow on to faith in Christ, and would die in their sins and suffer the eternal banishment of God in hell, uh, that's not the case. Because if you received New Testament baptism, you were a believer in Christ when you were baptized, and you're still a believer in Christ today. Sometimes, and people who are saved today don't get nearly enough of that precious time of praise and worship and celebration. We face way, way too many weeks. Go out to do battle with way too many weeks without nearly enough worship before we go. Sometimes we try to do battle without obedience because we haven't taken on the sign of the new covenant. Sometimes we go without worship. Some don't get to where you can feed yourself spiritually and therefore you suffer under a chronic state of spiritual malnutrition trying to fight the battles without the word of God that you desperately need. Many don't get that vision of the power of Christ because you're not bowing at the feet of Jesus, the captain of the Lord's host. You think the battle is yours to fight and to win. 
You carry this morning the burden of way too many defeats. But God can roll that burden away too. You see, God still works. God still longs to roll away the reproach of Egypt. Many of God's people today are carrying loads that you were never intended to carry. You're laboring under a heavy load. You've been saved. Yes, you're going to heaven. But have you gone into the promised land? The place of obedience. The place of service. The place where you're enjoying the promises and the provisions of God and the protection of God and the power of God in your life. The place where God is working in you and on you and through you. Obtain glory in your life. Have you gone on? Maybe you're still carrying the reproach of Egypt because you've said no to God. I'm here to tell you today, God will roll that burden away if you'll bring it to Him. You've carried it too long. And we roll that burden away at the moment we say, Yes, Lord. Yes, I will. Yes. The worst load of all to carry is the burden of sin. And you can carry that loading until you're crushed under it and face an eternity in hell. I want you to know that the Lord Jesus Christ died on Calvary to roll that burden away from you. And though you may have carried that burden in here today, you don't have to carry it out. You can roll it away. Just by saying yes to Jesus Christ. You see, he died on the cross for your sins. He was buried, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again the third day. And he stands there to give everyone the same invitation. Whosoever believeth in me should not perish, but have everlasting life. That is his promise to you today. And he'll keep it if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll feel that burden rolled away. Let's stand together, please.